Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word that we might know you, that we might understand life um, in this world and our lives in relation to you. As we read your word now about your glorious son, Jesus Christ, we pray that you would be helping us to respond rightly to it, to give up our rebellion, to submit to Jesus as our king, to receive his blessing in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why? Uh, there's a point in every child's life where they will ask that question continually. You know, why can't I eat chocolate for breakfast? Uh, why are you losing your hair? Uh, why can't I see my eyes? Uh, why does sheep sleep standing up? Uh, you know, important questions, at least for a kid, and I get asked questions like that all the time. Uh, but the why questions are actually the big questions in life uh, because they help us to understand uh, why our world is the way it is and how we should live in it. Uh, we never actually grow out of asking the why questions of life. And I'm pretty sure the, the recent pandemic has actually forced uh, you to ask those difficult questions uh, again and again. Now, why COVID? Uh, why does God allow this deadly virus to come that kills millions of people and disrupts the lives of all of us? Uh, you know, why Afghanistan? Why, why does God allow the rise of the Taliban again and, and terrorism to take root again? Why divorce? You know, the government announced recently that there were 78,000 couples divorced in Malaysia since the pandemic began. Uh, why anxiety? Uh, why depression? Why sickness? Why death? See, the why questions are the big questions of life. And it's a very important why question that drives our passage today from Psalm 2. Uh, the question is this, why does our world continue in its rebellion against God? Why does our world continue in its rebellion against God? You know, why are our family and friends uh, hostile to Christianity? Now, why does the government try so hard to stop the spread of Christianity? Uh, why do some people face you know, death penalties for conversion to Christianity? Uh, why is it one of the only things our society won't tolerate is actually being a Christian? Uh, well, we see that question comes in our passage. It's in, uh, it's in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why is our world united? in its rejection of God, and what will God do about it? Uh, I think we've seen so far in this uh, series of, of uh, introducing God at the beginning, God creates us in his image for, for relationship with him. Uh, in Eden, God's people live in God's place under God's rule, uh, enjoying his perfect blessing in uh, perfect relationship with him and with one another and the created world. Uh, but we saw uh, last week in the Bible study uh, that humanity rebelled against God, uh, denied his righteous rule, uh, declared autonomy. Uh, we wanted to live life our way uh, without God. Uh, Adam and Eve fell into sin and, and therefore they faced God's judgment. God's blessing turned to curse. They were cast from God's presence to experience pain in this world and ultimately uh, to face death. And, and we've seen that actually all of us have followed Adam and Eve in that rebellion, failing to honour God as we should deserving his righteous judgment. So we ask today, why? 
why does humanity continue to rebel? What does what will God do about it? Now, Psalm 2, it's written by King David, uh, who was king in Israel around 1000 BC. Uh, in its original context, it's about the circumstances of David's rule. Uh, but ultimately, it's a psalm, like all the psalms, that is pointing forward to King Jesus. Uh, we'll see later on that this was a psalm that the disciples looked to in Acts chapter 4 to understand both the, the tragic death of Jesus as well as his glorious resurrection as king, that they would live rightly now in this world, that they would proclaim him and live for him as king in a world that still hates him. And so my aim for us today is that we will understand why it is foolish to rebel against Jesus so that we will boldly and joyfully live for him in this hostile world that is against him. Well, let's uh, turn to the psalm then. And first point this morning, uh, this evening, global rebellion, global rebellion. David looks around at the world's rebellion and he asks in verse 1, uh, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So David has in mind the kingdoms of his day, Phoenicia, Philistia, Amon, Amalek, and so on, uh, all the king, uh, kingdoms that David himself conquered and brought under his rule. But he asks, he asks why. Uh, I mean, it is surprising, actually, to see our world agreed on anything. Uh, you just have to look at what's going on with the climate change talks or or how vaccines should be distributed in the world, and you realise that our world rarely agrees on anything. But there is one thing they agree on, and that's rebellion against God. The peoples and their leaders, they band together in this global rebellion against God. And it really doesn't matter if you, if you go to India, you go to China, Korea, France, England, Iran, Nigeria, Nepal, Malaysia or even Australia, doesn't matter whether people are Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, atheists, wherever you go in the world, you will find exactly the same thing. Rejection of Jesus, opposition, rebellion, rebellion against God and his king. Now, the world and its rulers are united in rebellion, verse 2, against the Lord and against his Anointed. Now that word anointed there, that means that's the word Messiah, uh, or in the new in Greek, uh, it's the word for Christ, right? Uh, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, it was God's promised king. Uh, and here in the psalm, it's talking about David, but ultimately, of course, it's going to be talking about Jesus Christ. And Jesus is being uh, foreshadowed here in Psalm 2. The rejection of Jesus is being foreshadowed in these opening verses. Now, in verse 3, we find out the reason why the world rebels. It's a cry for freedom, look at this, uh, verse 3. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. As we saw last week, it's a cry for, for autonomy, uh, for self-rule, uh, for freedom. Uh, humanity wants to be free, free to live our life our way without God. Uh, why? Because we, we distrust God's goodness. Uh, we, we consider God's rule as a, as a slavery. Uh, we consider the reign of, of God's king as chains because we want to do what we want to do without God. Now, of course, we've got it all wrong because God is good. His rule is perfect freedom. 
his ways bring perfect blessing. But doesn't this not explain the world that we live in right now? Because this is what we see in the world. We see all the nations, its kings and its peoples, continuing to rebel against God, continuing to rebel against his ultimate anointed king, Jesus Christ. And the battle cry today, it remains a cry for freedom. Uh, rather than welcoming Jesus and his loving rule, there are so many in, his, in this world that regard Jesus' rebuke of our sexual indulgence as chains or his rebuke as our, of our materialism as fetters. Uh, people like to think of God as a killjoy right, who just wants to sap the fun out of life. And so the cry is for freedom, freedom in sexual expression, uh, freedom to abort my baby, uh, freedom to pursue materialism, no boundaries, no restraints, no God, just me living my way without God. Whether we express the rebellion in uh, replacing him with another God or just defiantly disobeying him, it's still the same. But it is out of foolishness. That's why David asks, why? Why do this? I mean, it's like a fish wanting to be free from water a train wanting to be free from train tracks, a human wanting to be free from oxygen. Now, that's not real freedom at all. That's just a death wish. It's folly. And the New Testament shows that the, the greatest expression of this human rebellion uh, was 2,000 years ago uh, when Jesus Christ, God's promised king, uh, was, was crucified uh, on a cross. There the world and its kings united together to kill Jesus. Now, this is what the disciples pray in uh, Acts chapter 4, just after Peter and John have been arrested. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, so this is how we know that David wrote it, we learn it here, why did the nation, the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, and then they show how it's fulfilled. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So there at the cross, as Jesus' own disciple betrayed him, as the rest deserted him, uh, as the Jewish leaders arrested him, as Herod and Pilate condemned him, as the Roman soldiers crucified him and the people of Israel watched on and mocked, on that awful day, our world was united in global rebellion against God as we put his son to death with the sign above his head, of course, the king of the Jews. And, and what utter foolishness. We might ask, why? Why crucify God's saviour king? But we continue to see that same rebellion today. Wherever we go, whether it's the East destroying, trying to destroy Christianity, whether it's the West tearing down its Christian roots, our world is agreed. Jesus has to go. We need to be free from him. And so I guess if we're Christians here uh, this evening, uh, don't be surprised if you're mocked on campus by classmates or your teachers. 
Don't be shocked if you're discriminated against because you're a Christian. And don't be surprised if you're rejected by your family for becoming a Christian. Uh, don't be dismayed when you turn on the news and you find Christians being persecuted. That's normal. Our world is in rebellion against God, wants to overthrow his rightful rule, is willing to attack all who will stand in its way. And I guess we also must beware because this global rebellion is also seeking to recruit every one of us into its army. It's like Adam and Eve threw off God's rule in Eden in the name of freedom. So too, we are often tempted to think uh, that we'd be better off living for ourselves than living for Jesus. I mean, wouldn't it be better if I could sleep in on Sunday instead of going to church? Or I could work on my assignments instead of going to to Bible study, or I could I could play computer games uh, instead of reading my Bible and praying, or I could buy a new iPhone 13 Max Pro uh, instead of giving money to church. You know, wouldn't wouldn't my life be better if I just slept with my boyfriend or girlfriend, or I dated a non-believer, or I pursued academic success at all costs, or I lived for my own passions and desires? The temptation is there for every one of us to join in this foolish rebellion. But David begins this psalm by asking, why? Why rebel? Because it's utterly foolish. It cannot succeed. It's doomed to fail. Now that brings us to the the second point, the foolishness of rebellion, foolishness of rebellion. And uh, in verses 4 to 6, we shift from the nations to the Lord, from earth to heaven, from standing to sitting. We see how the sovereign Lord responds to our rebellion. Uh, Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. You know, God doesn't even bother to stand up off his throne. He just sits on his throne and he laughs. Ha, 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 ha. You fool! You would rebel against me? I like to put it this way. It's like an army of ants trying to take over the world. Uh, I mean, as human beings, we might seem powerful to each other with, with, you know, with bombs and planes that countries have, philosophies and science and, 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 and so on. But, I mean, what could an army of ants, even a billion ants, do against even one human being. Uh, You've probably tried this as a kid, just one cup of water uh, or in one footstep, you can decimate them all. How much more foolish to rebel against the creator of the universe? He made the galaxies with a word. He's all-present. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. I mean, do we really think that we can dethrone God? Do we really think that we could succeed in setting up our own little kingdom in treasonous rebellion against him? No, that is utter foolishness. And in our foolish attempts, God just laughs. You fool. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Uh, We see uh, in verse 5, he says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath, and terrify them in his 
fury because actually the world's rebellion against God is no laughing matter. Uh, God is rightfully angry, terrifyingly angry with us because God is glorious and good and he deserves all the honour and praise. And as we deny him and destroy the world that he made and hurt one another, he can't just sit back and do nothing. He's angry about it, very angry. And in verse 6, he responds to the rebellious words we heard in verse 3 with a statement of his own. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The original reference here is probably to the coronation of King David. Zion was the fortress uh, in Jerusalem uh, where God's king reigned. It was safe. It was uh, untouched. It was on a mountain uh, with uh, uh, cliffs on three sides. It was an impenetrable fortress. Not only that, but in 2 Samuel 7, God had promised David that one of his descendants would always sit on the throne forever, that his his kingdom would never end. Uh, So we read in 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So God had promised that his king would never be dislodged. He would sit on the throne forever. And, of course, that promise would also be fulfilled in David's greatest son, Jesus Christ. Of course, the nations did succeed on that day 2,000 years ago to crucify him on the cross. He was laid in the tomb, dead. But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? Three days later, God raised him again from the dead. He was restored to new life. And then he ascended to heaven, to God's right hand, to sit, ruling over God's kingdom forever and ever. Uh, Peter, in his uh, sermon uh, on Pentecost, he says this. This is his conclusion. Let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, Lord and Christ. That Jesus was resurrected. He was enthroned as king. Right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in absolute power and authority. Now, we can try all we, we would like to rebel, but God's already put him on the throne of heaven forever. And so as God looks at the rebellion of our world, first he laughs at how stupid it is, and then he is angered by such a stubborn refusal to bow the knee to Jesus. God's speech in verse 6, it then paves the way for God's king himself to speak in verse 7 to 9. But as God's king speaks, he actually takes on his own, on his lips, God's own word. Uh, Because uh, God's king would be subject to God, God's king would live for God. And so he says in verse uh, 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. David, again, is alluding to that promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, Not only had God promised David that he would establish his kingdom forever, but he'd also promised that David's son would be called God's son. Look what God says to David, 2 Samuel 7. He shall build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. God's king who would rule over all the nations forever would be called the son of God. And, And that part of the psalm too, that promise would also be fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what God said to Jesus at his baptism and the same words at his transfiguration, actually. God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus was the son of God. And I hope you now understand that when the Bible calls Jesus the son of God, it doesn't just mean that he was divine. Uh, You know, the God, the son in human flesh. He, He was God, the son in human flesh. That's true. But when God declares here at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son, he's actually saying something else. He's he's shining the spotlight on Jesus and saying, this is the one. This is the king. This is the one I promised in Psalm 2, uh, in 2 Samuel 7. This is the one who's going to rule over all nations, rule over my kingdom forever and ever. And so Psalm 2 helps us to understand what Jesus' kingdom will be like. Verses 8 to 9, uh, God now speaks to his anointed king and he makes him a promise. He says, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So here we have a promise, God the Father to God the Son. The nations are your inheritance. The world is yours. Put in the words of Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to you. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, that promise was fulfilled too, isn't it? Risen Jesus stood before his disciples. That's what he said. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all the nations. So here, friends, is a, is a basis for mission, actually. A promise has been made from God the Father to God the Son, a promise that he's going to rule over all the nations forever. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. And, and so as we we go out as, as Jesus' ambassadors to, to gather in the rebellious nations uh, under Jesus' loving rule. We'll bring these verses to their fulfillment. The risen Lord Jesus sends us out to gather in his inheritance. And as he does so, the nations are given a choice. Either we can submit to King Jesus or we can face his judgment. Submit or be judged. We see that come through in verse 9. He says, you shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I don't know what picture you have of Jesus. Um, Some people like to think of him as the baby in the manger uh, or, you know, Jesus meek and mild with a lamb in one arm and a baby in the other arm. And, And Jesus certainly was the most meek, mild, compassionate, loving man that has ever walked this earth. But we mustn't be deceived. Jesus didn't stay in a manger 
And though he did humble himself to death, he was raised victorious to reign. And one day every person of every nation will stand before Jesus as judge, either to be gathered into his everlasting kingdom as one of his people or to face his judgment as a rebel to be, to be smashed like pottery, as this verse puts it, thrown away to eternal judgment. The book of Revelation tells us this verse, verse 9, will be fulfilled not now, but when Jesus returns. See in Revelation chapter 19, it's talking about Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Jesus is going to return to judge all who have stood against him. So I guess we have here a warning and an encouragement. We have a choice, a warning uh, if you get on the wrong side of Jesus rebel against him, uh, there's judgment to come. The nations have their moment now, re rebelling against Jesus, rejecting uh, God's rule. But God's not going to allow this to continue on forever. He's already put Jesus on the throne of heaven. He's already gathering in the nations to be his people. And the day is coming when Jesus returns. The judgment day arrives and he destroys all who have rejected him. There's the warning if we reject him, but there's also an encouragement for us if we have submitted to Jesus as the king of our life. Because though we do live in a world now that's opposed to Jesus and opposed to Christians, uh, even though we might be rejected by those around us for our faith and suffer for being Christians, ultimately we know that, that, that Christ's enemies cannot succeed. It doesn't matter whether it's ISIS or it's uh, governments opposed to Christian or atheists uh, who oppose Christians. It's all going to be in vain in the end. Jesus continues to sit on the throne yesterday, today, forevermore. And when he returns, all evil will be destroyed and we will be saved. So the psalm then leaves us with a choice, uh, the same choice that was given to the original readers as well. How will we respond to God's chosen king? How will we respond to King Jesus? Will we persist in foolish rebellion? Or will we choose the wise path of submitting to him? So in the, the final stanza of this uh, poem, uh, the psalmist steps in as the fourth voice uh, to tell us what the wise response is. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So there's the choice for each one of us. Persist in rebellion and one day face Christ's judgment. Or turn back, submit to his loving rule over your life and find in him blessing, blessings like forgiveness, adoption into God's family, eternal life, and so on. 
So as we come to a close, I want to draw out some of the implications of this response for ourselves, for others, and for God himself. So firstly, for ourselves, what does it look like to submit to God and his king, Jesus? It's there in verse 11. Uh, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. They're interesting words to put together, aren't they? Serve and fear, rejoicing and trembling. They they almost seem seem like opposite words, don't they? I mean, how can you rejoice and tremble at the same time? Now, I don't think the fear and trembling here means uh, being afraid of God per se, as if he was some evil dictator tyrant. You know, God is our loving king. His rule is a blessing. Uh, but it does mean that we need to treat God with the respect that he deserves. Yes, he's our loving heavenly father who, who works all things for the good of those who love him. But he's also the, the powerful ruler of this universe. Is the creator of all things. He demands our total submission. He demands our obedience and our worship to tremble, fear, before his majesty. And in particular, he demands that we wholeheartedly submit to his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what I think kissing the son means in that, that final uh, verse, kiss the son lest he be angry. Uh, kissing the son means bowing before him in in total submission. So I want to ask you this morning, uh, this evening, have you done that already? Uh, Is Jesus Lord of your life? I don't just mean is he Lord on Sundays. Is he Lord of your life in every part, Lord of your time, your family, your work, your eating and sleeping, your breathing, your your priorities and hopes and dreams and plans for this life? Is is he just a friend, saviour, brother, sister, brother? Is he your king, the Lord of your life? I I don't know if anyone here has ever heard of a Tamagotchi before. Any of you ever heard of them before? Probably all way too young. They used to have these little toys Uh, from Japan and basically they were little pets. Uh, on a little computer screen. And uh, the idea was that you you take it out every now and then and you you know feed it some food and play with it and then the dog would be happy and if you didn't it died. <laughs> so I think some some Christians t- treat Jesus a little bit like one of those uh, Tamagotchis. You know, they they give to Jesus the parts of the of their life that they're happy with uh, but not the rest. They'll let him be Lord of their life sometimes when they're at CF or Bible study or church, but not in the rest of life, not in family, not in studies, not in relationships. They'll give him a bit of time on Sunday, but the rest of their time they'll keep for themselves. Sure, they'll call themselves Christians, but he's not really the first priority in our life. The first priority is my studies, my marks my future, my scholarship. And you know he's not first because, well, you skip CF or church uh, whenever exams are coming or an assignment's due. But you see, if all authority in heaven and earth has been given to King Jesus, if, if he's going to rule now and forever, 
and he demands nothing less than 100% control over every part of your life. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord. And if we're not willing to give him that, let him be Lord of our life in every respect, well, then we're actually still part of the rebellion, aren't we? We're still in that, that folly of shifting God aside to live for other idols, other things that I think will make my life meaningful and happy. The call of this psalm is to see that as utter folly, to give up the rebellion, to let Jesus be Lord. Will you put him first before your studies, before your family, before your hobbies, before your stuff, before everything? So that's the implication for ourselves. Jesus must be Lord. But, of course, this has implications for others as well, isn't it? It's interesting how David begins with the question, why? Why do the nations rebel against God and his king? But he doesn't really give us the answer, does he? I mean, it's a, it's a rhetorical question. He, he gives the answer, how? How will God respond to the opposition uh, against him? You see it again in verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So David knows that if people continue in rebellion against God, in the end it's going to lead to their destruction. And so David writes this psalm to plead with his readers. Why? Stop this foolishness. Give up the rebellion. Stop the fighting. It's all in vain. You'll be destroyed. Come back. Submit to God and his king. So I wonder, is that the perspective that you have on life as you look out on the world? I mean, do you truly believe that people who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ are actually going to face eternal judgment, that they're going to go to hell? Because that, that is the sad reality, isn't it, for our friends, our family members, classmates, teachers, colleagues, who don't put their trust in the Lord Jesus as king. And if that is the case, then surely we need to warn them. Tell them of their folly before it's too late. In loving compassion, like David here, to plead, give up the rebellion, stop the foolishness, turn to King Jesus as your Lord. Now that can seem like a pretty scary thing to do, isn't it? especially when it's maybe talking to your parents. And it's interesting in the New Testament we saw that it was this psalm that the early church looked to to find boldness to proclaim Jesus themselves. Uh, I mentioned in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John had been arrested and threatened to speak no more about Jesus. When the Christians heard of it, they quoted this psalm and they prayed. Now I wonder what you would have prayed if you were the church. You just heard Peter and John have been arrested. Maybe you pray for them to be released. And maybe you pray for comfort and safety for the rest of the church. Pray for persecution to cease. And maybe those are often the things we pray when there's persecution in Malaysia. But what did they actually pray after they looked at Psalm 2? And this is what they prayed, Acts 4.29. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants 
to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And their prayers were answered immediately. When they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. See, as we read Psalm 2, it's meant to encourage us to boldly preach the gospel to other people. Yes, we know we will face opposition, but it should give us the courage to speak anyway. We know that if, as we speak of Jesus, people may do their worst to us. They might mock us. They might discriminate against us. They might arrest us, attack us, even kill us in some places. But even then, we don't need to be afraid because they once did the same things to Jesus and God raised him from the dead to rule eternally. If we're with Jesus, we're on the winning side. And so we don't need to fear this hostile world. As we read this psalm, it can give us boldness to continue to preach Christ and knowing that there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, finally, uh, notice what this, what God is like in this psalm. Uh, God is the sovereign ruler, yes. God is our final judge, yes. But he is also a God of mercy and compassion, isn't he? Notice how God acts towards our wicked and rebellious world. He sends his own precious son to die at the hands of sinful people so that he can offer them blessing and forgiveness. He calls out to rebel sinners. He says, stop your foolish rebellion. Turn to my son. You will be blessed. That's how it ends the psalm, isn't it, in verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus offers us the blessing of a perfect relationship with God in a world where sin and suffering will one day be no more. And so if there's any of us here today that have not yet submitted to Jesus as Lord of our life, can I say to you today in love, please give up the rebellion. Submit to his loving rule. Because we do believe that what the Bible says is true. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. Rejection of him will lead to everlasting punishment. And we don't want that. I don't want that for you. If you will just give up the rebellion, turn to King Jesus, let him be Lord of your life, you'll be blessed by God. You will be saved. You will have joy even as you serve him. So there's the choice for each one of us, rebel or submit, will you pick the foolish response, rejecting Jesus, or will you live the wise life, give up the rebellion, submit to Jesus as the king of your life? It's a choice for each one of us to see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for 
reminding us this evening of the foolishness of rebellion against you. Lord, we praise you that you have set your son to rule over the nations forever. We thank you for the forgiveness and the blessing that you offer each one of us through him as we turn to him as Lord. Lord, we do want to pray um, this evening for any amongst us who have not yet turned to Jesus as Lord of their life. We pray, Lord, that you would help them to give up the rebellion, even tonight, while they can still receive your blessing. And we pray that you would help each one of us to let Jesus be Lord in every area of our life. There is any area we're denying his rule right now. Help us, Lord, to turn away from it, to see the folly of our sin. And we do pray that you would help us to boldly proclaim Jesus in this hostile world to our friends, family, classmates, to those around us. We know it's scary. But, Lord, we pray that many more would come to know the Lord Jesus as Saviour and King before it's too late. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.